0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the book of Deuteronomy, and here the guys will be in Deuteronomy chapter 18. If you have not yet subscribed to the Theopolis app, we invite you to do so. You can find a link down there in the show notes to the app website, or you can simply download the app from your app store. There are tons of resources on that app, including Biblical Horizons and Theopolis Conferences, course audio and video, ebooks, and much more. So to sign up, there's a link down there in the show notes, or you can simply download that app from your app store. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this discussion. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing
1: Deuteronomy 18. Welcome to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes is recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out. Uh, Jeff Myers, who is usually part of our podcast team, is unable to be with us today. He's attending to a pastoral call at uh, a hospital in St. Louis, and uh, our prayers go with him as he uh, visits a, a, a member of his church who's recently had a heart attack. Uh, we are in the middle of a podcast series on the book of Deuteronomy, and we're halfway through the book. We are in the section of Deuteronomy that uh, is running through the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments, beginning with Chapter Five. Uh, we have the, the Ten Commandments are listed in Deuteronomy Five in a slightly different form from the way they appear in Exodus. But from that point, we have about twenty chapters where Moses is teaching on each of the Ten Words, but developing them in different ways. Uh, and uh, not always developing them in the straightforward way that we might think. So we're in Deuteronomy 18 currently. I will be covering that, or at least part of that in this episode. Deuteronomy 18 is part of the fifth commandment section of Deuteronomy, the fifth word section. The fifth word is, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. That's a, a command concerning family life in its original form in the ten words. But when Moses teaches on it, he doesn't mention family life at all. Instead, he talks about various offices within Israel, civil offices, the priests uh, we'll talk about in chapter 18. Uh, At the end of chapter 18, he'll be talking about prophets, judges up here. So he's not talking about family authorities, but he's talking instead about the authorities that exist within Israel. Uh, Israel is kind of an extended family, or they're a community of brothers, That's the language that the book of Deuteronomy often uses, uh, that uh, Israelites are to consider themselves, consider one another brothers. And as a family uh, of brothers and siblings, they have Yahweh as their father. That's one of the key motifs of the book of Deuteronomy. Yahweh is the father. He's giving these commandments. And if they honor him as father, then they will live long in the land that they're entering to possess and conquer. But Yahweh, their father, also has appointed uh, civil fathers, uh, liturgical fathers, prophetic fathers to guide and lead them and they're supposed to Israel is supposed to show the same deference to those public fathers, those fathers of Israel that they show to their fathers and mothers within their families. So that's the that's the basic the, the basic theology and the way that uh, this section of Deuteronomy develops. it's about a variety of father figures. Interestingly one of the one of the accents of this section, it's not just a, again, in the fifth word that's directed to children and the way children should honor their parents, father and mother, and the responsibility is directed to those who are subordinate. But that also implies certain responsibilities on the part of those who are uh, not subordinate, those who are uh, have uh, a higher position within the family and also within uh, the family of Israel. And that's uh, a frequent, that's not the only thing that uh, this section of Deuteronomy is saying on, but this section of it does focus on responsibilities of these Israelite fathers to carry out their paternal responsibilities faithfully. So, for example, judges are supposed to rule without partiality. They're supposed to rule without taking bribes. They're not to let their eyes be blinded by a bribe, so they pervert justice. That's a responsibility on the part of the father, not on the part of the children. It's also implied responsibility on the part of the children not to, not to give bribes. But, um, it's the the focus of attention is on the responsibilities of those who are who have that authority, those who bear authority. I wanted to highlight one particular part of chapter eighteen. I don't know if we'll get to it in this in this session or not. We have a section on the priests that opens chapter 18. But about midway through chapter eighteen, Moses turns his attention to various forms of divination, uh, attempts to see the future, and then talks about the prophetic office at the end of the chapter. Uh, and um, it's, I think it's worth pondering, what is it that makes divination and these various practices of uh, foreth- foretelling the future wrong? And uh, there might be a, a an instinct or an assumption that they're wrong because we can't know the future, the future is close to us, the secret things belong to the Lord, we go with what's revealed and the future hasn't been revealed, we don't know what's coming and so we avoid these measure these uh, these practices of divination because the future is an is is an undiscoverable country to us. Uh, and I think there's some there's some problems with that. Biblically speaking, I think the pro- problem is that the Bible does actually tell us things that we are to expect in the future. I mean, God makes promises to Israel and Israel expects those promises to be fulfilled. Prophets talk about things that are sometimes in the very immediate future, sometimes in the far distant future but uh, they're given insight into what's coming on a more kind of mundane level. Uh, that prophetic imagination, I think, is an important part of the wisdom that Proverbs communicates. The wise man in the book of Proverbs is somebody who can anticipate uh, the consequences of his actions. A fool is somebody who kind of blunders forward, does things without thinking about the consequences they were going to have, and then suffers the consequences and is surprised when the consequences when uh, what he's done comes back to bite him, the wise man sees some sees the the road ahead. He sees what's going to happen, and so he takes steps in anticipation of a certain uh, a certain kind of future result. So there are various ways that the Bible does disclose the future to us. Uh, and I think the problem is not that we're uh, the problem with these practices is what makes them abominable is not that they're probing something that we shouldn't probe, but they're prob- probing it in the in the wrong in the wrong way, using the wrong means. In some sense, uh, some anticipation of the future, not certain knowledge of the future, certainly, but some anticipation of the future is kind of essential to living and acting at all. We're always kind of acting toward particular future goals. We get out of bed in the morning anticipating or hoping that getting out of bed will make a difference and that getting out of bed will be preferable to staying in bed, and that we'll be able to be... Uh, Find some kind of productivity and fruitfulness in the course of the day. Uh, We embark on this podcast episode. We're recording a podcast episode uh, in in anticipation of and hopeful that it will get broadcast and people will listen to it and be edified by it. So the reason why we put in the time to prepare and the time to record the episode all has to do with an anticipated future. Obviously, we don't know that future for certain, but we're still oriented toward the future. And that's just built into human life. We're creatures in time. And so that kind of hope and anticipation is built in the way we live and act. What the Bible teaches is that we should we should rely on God to disclose the future to us insofar as it's disclosed uh, rather than seeking some other means. Uh, and we also, uh, Walter Brueggemann, his commentary on this section, also talks about the difference between uh, many pagan conceptions of time and conceptions of the future, which were kind of deterministic. Divination assumes a kind of fixed future it's all planned out, and we just have to. The book's already been written, and we're going to have to kind of access it. And emphasizes in contrast to that, God's freedom in in the world, God's capability of doing new things, and uh, as the Bible says, of changing His mind and changing course in response to things that response to things that Israel does and the nations do. So there's a God discloses certain things about our future that we can rely on, certain promises that we can rely on, and also we go into the future confident that it is under God's control, but it's an arena of God's action and God's God's free action. He's not bound by any kind of fate. Uh, and so, we go into the future relying on Him. And when you're, when you're doing practices of divination, including modern forms of divination that we might talk about, when you do those practices of divination, then you're assuming the future is some kind of fixed entity without God as a personal actor. So, I, I think that's a We'll get to more details about the, uh, those practices of divination and the, the alternative of prophecy uh, as we go through the chapter. But I just want to highlight that particular theme as we get started. Peter, just a quick comment on this notion of
2: fatherhood. We're um, encompassing and viewing these chapters in in light of that notion, aren't we, honoring your mother and father. And I just wanted to spell out, think think with you guys about a few um instances of where different offices are explicitly referred to in parental terms in scripture. It's it seems that kingship often has that sense. You know, Saul is is referred to as David's father. He calls David his son. Um, Samuel and Saul have a similar relationship themselves. Deborah is referred to as a mother um in Israel. So those civic um Ideas are framed in terms of parenthood in scripture. And then same with prophets and priests, isn't it? When Micah in um, Judges High is a priest, he, he says, you should be a father um, to us and, and to my um, house. Elisha refers to, um, uh, sorry, uh, to Elijah as his father. And and so these ideas of fatherhood that we're um, e- exploring, they're, they're given in scripture and i'm guessing therefore that we, we should see um the diviners here the kind of the um magicians sorcerers etc as kind of false uh, false fathers you know um people who um the israelites are wrong to establish as father or mother figures in in their lives does that kind of sound about, about right to you
1: yeah I think that's right um just one one particular note that I think might re- might reinforce that is the the emphasis in that section about divination on hearing or listening there's a contrast between uh, verse 14 says those nations which you are to dispossess listen to those or hear those who practice witchcraft uh that's set over against the prophet that Israel's supposed to hear in the very next verse verse 15 uh, and that verb uh, is it key verb in uh, in Deuteronomy goes back in going back at least to Deuteronomy six hero Israel the Lord your God is one that's Shama, the, the verb Shama and that verb is used seven times throughout this section the fifth the fifth word section uh, listening to these figures is part of uh, honoring them as Father, you have your ear open to them and yeah the diviners are uh, described as people that the pagans or the Canaanites listen to. So yeah, they're they're set in opposition to the prophetic father of Israel in particular.
2: And just to help me get my bearings, where are we thinking that we segue into um, "You shall not murder" as a commandment? Sort of start of
1: nineteen? I would put it after nineteen, the laws concerning refuge and war. Yeah, that's where that's where I would say the the beginning of the beginning of the next the next section is. There's some there's some dispute about that. There's dispute about all of the boundaries of this. But uh, the as far as the beginning point, I didn't mention that this time, but I think it goes back to chapter 16, verse 18, where uh, you have the appointment of judges and officers in the towns. Uh, and then uh, it goes in the following chapter to talk about judgments that are taken to the central sanctuary, to the place where the Lord sets his name. Uh, chapter 17 ends with the king's Chapter 18 is about priests and prophets, so I think it starts in 1618 and then ends with the end of chapter 18, and then we move into issues of violence and murder, first of all, with the cities of refuge that begin chapter 19. Well, I kind of jumped ahead with my uh, comments about the future and divination, but the first part of chapter 18 is focusing on Levitical priests uh, and the, the priest's role in Israel uh, and the way that Israel is supposed to honor these particular these particular fathers, and I think that in insofar as this is an application of the fifth command, and its its priests as a kind of father figures in Israel, fathers who are to be uh, that uh, Israel is supposed to hear and listen to, that's part of their part of their job is to teach, and the way that uh, Israel is supposed to show honor respect to them is by providing for them. The, the chapter begins with this emphasis on uh, the fact that the, the Levites don't have any tribal inheritance. There's no particular portion of the land that's given to the tribe of Levi. Uh, certain cities are given to the Levites and the priests, and there are areas around those cities that belong to the priests. There are fields around the cities. But unlike the other tribes, they don't have any tribal section, and they're in some ways in, the, in a condition analogous to the condition of the landless. So uh, the fact that uh, the festive laws of Deuteronomy mentioned uh, the, the orphan, the widow, the stranger, and the Levites together as a group of people who who should be invited to the feast indicates they're in this kind of economically in this kind of marginal liminal kind of position without without land. Uh, and so the way that Israel honors them as father is by providing for their upkeep uh, when they don't because they don't have income from their own, Uh, their own landed properties. The first couple of verses of chapter 18, I think have uh, they seem to have a a, a neat uh, kind of A-B-A-B uh, structure to them. Uh, The Levitical priests have no portion or inheritance with Israel. That's the A. B is they shall eat Yahweh's offerings by fire and his portion. Go back to A prime. They have no inheritance among their brothers. B prime, Yahweh is their inheritance as he promised them. So twice you have the statement that they have no inheritance, and then you have the statement of the benefit they they give in instead of an inherited land, instead of a portion of the land. And uh, that's stated in two different ways. Uh, one is that because they don't have any land, they eat not from the produce of their of their land, but they eat from Yahweh's table, the Isha or Isha, I think it's Isha, the offerings by fire or that's one translation of that term. I, uh, Jim Jordan taught me to to think of that in terms of the connection with the word for woman, bridal food. How, however you translate that, it's referring to the portions of the, uh, the altar portions of the sacrifices. And the priests receive some of the altar portions. They receive special portions of food from the sacrifices that no one else eats. So there's a there's a food privilege that goes along with being a priest. They don't eat food from the land that they own because they don't own any land, but they do eat from the Lord's table. Uh, and then in in verse two, the that connection with the Lord gets even more intimate. It's not just that they eat from the Lord's table, but that Yahweh Himself is their inheritance. They don't have landed inheritance, but they have they have the Lord Himself as their inheritance, which is obviously a, 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 a far more super abundant inheritance, far more, far more fruitful uh, and eternally fruitful inheritance than the land would be. But they're put in this position of dependence, dependence on the Lord. Which means, in practice, their dependence on uh, Israel's generosity and honor to them, because uh, the the Lord is the Lord is treated as their as their portion.
3: What should we make of it? There seem to be differences between parts of the animal that are given to the priest in this chapter, from the parts of the animal given to the priest in Numbers eighteen and Leviticus chapter seven. So there you have the breast that is waved and the thigh is contributed in Leviticus 7. Then in Numbers 18, or Numbers 18, yeah, it's a different part of the animal, the breast and the right thighs, or the right thigh. And here it is um,
1: the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. Do you have a suggestion for how to how to reconcile those? I'm not sure.
3: Um, I'm curious whether, is there something we should see as a change in the law as they're about to enter into the land? And if so, or is this um, something that can be harmonized with that earlier account so that it's actually the same?
2: I mean, do we, in part, have a different um, scope here, Alistair? So um, w- one of the things about Deuteronomy eighteen is that we have the sort of slightly odd two phrases in apposition at the start, don't you? The the Levitical priests kind of comma all the tribe of Levi. And so are we having here um what's true of the whole tribe? And then are Numbers um eighteen and, and elsewhere um carving out more specific requirements, particularly for priests? Is,
3: is that a possible um, way of viewing it? That's one possibility, I guess.
1: Yeah, I, I was, I'm not sure I followed what you said, James. Are you saying that these are uh, sacrifices that are offered by priests themselves and they get certain portions of their own sacrifices? And then in uh, is, that what, is that the distinction you're making in contrast to Leviticus, where it's the offerings of the people?
2: Oh, I was just wondering if the Levites as a whole, so whether they're priests or not, um, can get things like the shoulder, cheeks, stomach, etc., wow. and whether um, the things to do with the thigh, for instance, in Numbers 18 could be specifically for um, priests, because it's, I mean, in general, it, it, it's not clear to me to what extent Deuteronomy 18 refers to the whole tribe and to what it, it extent it
3: refers to priests. Right. Yeah. Okay. There, I got you. There are certainly distinctions between what can be eaten by the person who's actually officiated and the rest of the priests, and then it would seem there are distinctions with the rest of the priests as well. So that wouldn't make sense, but I'm curious whether there are more details to fill out that.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's really helpful, and it, and it does fit with the way that uh, Deuteronomy tends to describe the priests, which are as in verse 1 here. Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi. I think it is making a distinction between priests and Levites that was made in uh, Leviticus and Numbers. I don't think it's canceling that division, but the the language is different, and this this rule could very well be applying to the whole to the whole tribe. So Levites who are there at the place that uh, the Lord chooses to place His name, they're assisting the priests. The priests get their priestly portions, and then there are additional portions that are given to uh, the Levites who are assisting. I guess one one argument against that would be that uh the language of verse three is that they shall give this to the priest, the shoulder, the two cheeks and the stomach. And it's also the priests due. But given the language again of Levitical priests, it seems like he might be uh the Moses might be using the term in a more in a broader sense. I, I just want to point out one thing that uh, that uh took, I took note of um shoulder and two cheeks, I'm assuming there's a cheeks from the head of the animal. Uh, and then the stomach. It's the stomach that kind of threw me for a loop because it does seem like in Leviticus, internal organs, kidneys, portion of the liver, the uh, karev, which uh, whatever those innards are, those are placed on the altar and those are part of the Lord's altar portions. They go on his table and they're consumed in his fire. Uh, and uh, I've often taken that as a sign that there's there's a particular claim that God is making on the interior of the animal, symbolizing the claim he makes on the heart of the person. Uh, interestingly, the heart is not listed among the part, portions that are, are put on the altar, nor is the stomach. So I, I think you could harmonize what Leviticus says and what Deuteronomy says, because the stomach is not singled out at all in Leviticus uh, as something that's put on the altar. And here the stomach is given to the priest. But it still seemed odd to me that then, that an internal uh, an internal organ would be given to the priests rather than being devoted to the altar fire. So it makes me wonder if uh, maybe the the uh, offer of verse one they shall eat Yahweh's offerings by fire and his portion uh, that's even stronger than it appears. It's not just that they're eating parts of the animal; that uh, Yahweh is also having parts of the animal. But they're getting some of Yahweh's own parts of the animal. He claims these these internal organs uh, as his own. Uh, but then the the priests get a portion of that a, a a portion of those internal organs as their own. They have they have some kind of share in that uniquely divine portion of the animal. I guess I I let me I thought just to wind that discussion up. I think the extending the idea of the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my inheritance, and that connection with food. That we have here in the uh, beginning of chapter 18, I think that's uh, that gets expanded and played on in, in other parts of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, I think. And David several times, or the Psalms at least several times, talk about the Lord is my portion. He's not speaking as a Levite, I don't think. I think every, all, Israel, all Israel is singing that, the Lord is my portion, the, um, which means that uh, there's a kind of honorary Levitical status to the whole of the people. Uh, the Lord is everyone's portion, and especially that becomes the case when they're driven out of the land. They don't have a landed inheritance anymore at all, and yet they still have their portion, the por- same portion that the Levites have always had. Now all Israel shares in that portion, uh, and that's somehow connected with food that's, that that uh, that the Lord provides for them. And uh, you know, thinking about this as we move into the into the new covenant, I think we can, kind of a, it uh, seems to resolve in a kind of eucharistic. There's a kind of a eucharistic resolution, so to say as uh, to say as Christians, the Lord is my portion, the Lord is my cup, the Lord is my inheritance. One way that that's manifested is that the Lord gives Himself at His table, and we actually do eat the altar portions. The same, the same body and blood that was offered on the cross now becomes our food, uh, and uh, we have this kind of uh, Levitical priestly status uh, as table companions. I wanted to pick up this idea of yours, Peter, that the
2: Levites are often bunched in with the sojourners, et cetera, um, in various lists in Deuteronomy. And um, the way in which they do seem to have this nomadic status, they seem to have a, a, a freedom to wander around. And we see some of that in the book of Judges. Towards the end, we get these levites on the move and they're sojourning in various places and the whole thing there is a disaster due to the nature of the levites but strikes me as interesting that kind of if you think of the flow there of the book of judges the tribes go out and take their land and inherit their um inheritance with more or less degrees of success in different tribes i guess and it's almost then what you should see afterwards is the levites doing following suit a kind of levitical conquest as the land of the land as they kind of go out and take it for the lord in 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 that sense and obviously what you see is um the opposite a a compromised um priesthood which sort of really sits at the heart of the book's um failings and and that idea of the Levites as um wanderers and so on just seems to be um uh yeah present in, in what you were saying about the way they'd be um to be provided for and there's this um freedom associated with them in verse six onwards, isn't there, if, if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of Israel and um uh you know and he may come when he desires. There seems to be this um Freedom that they can go and minister at, at the temple if they um, want to do that for a spell, and then return to their town. And they they just do seem to have this um uh this wandering role that kind of has a slight prototype with Samuel and the way in which he does these um, circuits of uh, the land and establishes various altars and other things as as he does that.
1: Yeah, Dennis Olson in his uh... Little book on uh, the death of Moses in Deuteronomy. I can't remember the exact title now, but uh, he he describes the Levites as being in a kind of perpetual exile, uh, and it's almost it almost has the feel of yeah they're wanderers as if they as if they're never entered the land fully entered the land fully settled in the land, and they're loosely connected to the land, and yet at the same time they're because they have priestly and biblical cities all over. uh, uh, all over the land, 48 of them total, uh, they're present everywhere. Uh, and in some ways their presence in the land is what ensures that Israel will live long and prosper in the land that the Lord gives them because the priests are teaching them how to live in a way that prevents them from being expelled and exiled. So, uh, they have a crucial role in maintaining the Israel's presence in the land, but they're, they're kind of loosely connected with it, uh, almost as if they're still in, still in the, uh, in the wilderness, they're still relying on food that comes from the Lord in in a more direct way than the rest of Israel is. You know, the the food that from the from the offerings, or they're reliant on the food that the uh, Israelites themselves bring. Uh, but they're they don't they they aren't uh, great landowners that are building these. They're kind of they're kind of at the margins of the economy as as the widow and orphan are. That's interesting. So they
2: have this more um, manner-fed um, ministry, um, and in a sense, follow Moses' lead in the kind of Moses, Aaron, both die outside the land without an inheritance um, in it, and
3: I, I guess they follow after that model in, in, un, in an unusual sense. I do wonder whether thinking of the Levites as wanderers is the most helpful way to conceive of them um, in the case of Samuel's ministry. I wonder whether it's conceived of more as the ministry of a prophet or seer. That's certainly how he's described by Saul in um, chapter 9. And so he's a priest, seer. In the case of someone like Levi, or Eli rather, Eli seems to be located and based at the site of the tabernacle. He's not wandering around in quite the same way. The prophets were more peripatetic. The Levites were dispersed, but not necessarily wanderers the prophets however were wandering from place to place and in each form of spatiality in some ways the priest is in the central location that people gather to the king is the one in the central location from which he rules the levites are the ones dispersed the prophets are the ones wandering about and each of them together helps to form a sense of space we don't usually think enough about the degree to which a nation has to be formed into a coherent space it needs to have its settlements it needs to, and there are different sorts of relationships with space that are sustained by different parts of a um a, a lens life i mean we can think about the importance of an infrastructure that connects spaces together the settlements and rootedness in particular ways in locations, the sort of um, larger national spectacles that bring us together, the dispersal of certain national functions throughout a land. And in each of these ways, there are ministries set up by the Lord that represent different ways of bringing people together and relating to their place, whether that's the central sanctuary as the gathering place, whether it's the Levites as the dispersed, whether, whether it's the prophets and disseminating things through journeys and creating maybe a relationship beyond the land in some, certain cases, or whether it's the king gathering the nation within its borders. Each of these represents a way of inhabiting and articulating space.
2: So maybe, maybe then we want to see the Levites as a bit more of a glue kind of holding the various tribes together and, and making sure that there is this continuity throughout the structure. I mean the the um root of the word Levi have has of course got to do with um joining, which is part of Leah's um declaration when uh Levi is is, is born she's going to be joined to her husband um by virtue of them, and I wonder if they then are to kind of join Israel to her husband, and also then to to sort of join uh, the the body together as a whole at the same time.
1: Yeah, I think that's that, that sounds right to me. Again, especially given the derivation of the of the tribal name, Alistair, your analysis of the different relations to space is really helpful. Yeah, um, I think yeah, wanderer maybe the. May not be the best description, but there does there is still a looser relationship to the land that uh, puts them in in that kind of that kind of uh, liminal category. They're not they're in the land, but they're not entirely of the land. And uh, I think there's uh, they're representing something about Israel as a whole. In some ways, I think they're they're representing the the uh, they're living in a way that uh, indicates the provisionality of the land in certain respects. That um, they're the people that already, when exile comes, it's the is the Levites and priests who are already saying, "The Lord is my portion and my inheritance." And uh, I uh, even even if we lose the land, we still have our inheritance with us. Our, our inheritance travels with us into exile, and that that's a kind of Levitical mentality that gets expanded to the rest of the rest of the people. Uh, I want to point out a couple of. Uh, uh, particular terms that uh, I think are were interesting to me. One is the verse three, uh, when it begins to describe the portions of the animal that are given to the priests, it uses the word mishpat. This is the priest's mishpot from the people. Uh, mishpat is uh, shafat, the verb behind mishpat. Shafat means to judge. Mishpat is often a declaration or judgment that's passed. That's the, wor- that's the way the word is used in uh, predominantly in Deuteronomy, uh, but here it's referring to a, an apportionment of certain parts of an animal to the priests. But I think that the the uh, judicial aspect of the term is still kind of hovering in there. So it's like the just portion of the priest is this. This is a it's a rule of distribution. It's a rule of distributive justice. You might say that the priests and Levites get this uh, get these particular portions, and I my mind immediately went to uh, the sons of Eli and their uh, dissatisfaction with the just portion that they were given and their desire to receive a different and more than their just portion. Uh, And that, uh, that having that concept in mind that uh, it's a just portion raises the, the severity of their sin against the sacrifices. It it highlights the severity of their sin against the sacrifices. The other thing I want to highlight was in verse five and that uh, the, the, the fact that Yahweh is spoken of as choosing the Levites, choosing Levi, his sons from all the tribes, there's a kind of concentric circles of election. Uh, within all of the nations, Yahweh has elected Israel. Uh, within Israel, Yahweh has elected this particular tribe uh, as to exemplify certain things that are true of the whole people. The whole people is a priestly nation, and the priests in particular are highlighting what they're, they're doing within Israel, what Israel is supposed to do among all the nations. Uh, and specifically what they're given to do is to stand and serve uh, in the name of Yahweh. that's the that's the terminology that's used uh, several times in Deuteronomy. I think it was used back in chapter 10 to describe the the priestly work, standing at the altar, standing uh, in the in the holy space, serving uh, at the uh, serving in the house of Yahweh, the great King of Israel, they're standing as attendants. Uh, that's the priestly calling and to to serve Yahweh in his house. That's what they're chosen for. Uh, and you can reason from that to think about what Israel as a whole is chosen for. Uh, they're chosen to be a, a priesthood for the nations, a nation that is maintaining the house of Yahweh uh, on behalf of all the peoples of the earth. So, the the, the again, the Levites are kind of exemplary within Israel, uh, manifesting uh, something something that is uh, in certain respects true of the whole people that's interesting. So it's the idea of
2: fatherhood as representative um uh, to a large extent here
1: right. yeah, that's yeah that's good yeah Quick, it, re- um, rep- representative and and kind of making a concrete concretely exemplifying and um setting a pattern for for Israel who is Yahweh's son, right, right. I was intrigued by this reference to um uh, the
2: Levite and what he can do in verses six through to um eight. So it seems that he can um basically temporarily relinquish his post in a in a town um and his duties there. and um it looks like in verse eight, he sells something. um I, I have it translated it as here here as what he receives from the sale of his patrimony um it's a sort of slightly unusual um phrase but it seems that he can um sell something go and minister um centrally at the temple and then return later and um I I, I was thinking about this I mean my um my understanding of the whole um Selling of property um, and selling of, of patrimony, if that has to do with land, is that the Levite has more flexibility um, than the rest of Israel. So, from what I can gather from um, particularly Leviticus 25, um, if you sell your land, you sell effectively X number of harvests. So, you know, if I'm 10 years away from the Jubilee, I can sell my land, um, I'm selling. 10 lots of harvests and then it will revert to me um, unless I redeem it beforehand. Um, With cities, it's different. If you sell somewhere within a walled city, you have a year to redeem it. um, But after that, it goes permanently to whoever's bought it. So it's it's not the same as selling land or harvest. There can be this um, permanent acquisition within um, a city. The exception... To that, from what I can tell, is the Levites. So if they sell a house within their city, um, they can redeem it whenever they want. There isn't this year um, kind of window that they've got and then they permanently lose it. The Levites can come back and reclaim their house anytime they want. And um, it, I, I wonder if kind of verses um, 8 particularly is um, uh, referring, looking... Um, back To that, that the, there is that more flexibility to Levi, he could sort of sell up, go and spend a number of years centrally, perhaps in Jerusalem, and then come back and reclaim his property within a city.
1: Yeah, that's I think that's really helpful. That the phrase at the end of verse eight was puzzling me, and that makes that makes good sense of it. I think it would
2: then give them more of this, um, role, then I mean, uh, uh as yeah being slightly dispersed uh, scattered and it, it it's an unusual image isn't it? it it's almost as if they need to return home to the sanctuary in order to get kind of charged up and refueled to go back out into israel and minister in their um town it, it's it's almost as if it um uh anticipates this constant moving um, in and out from a central um, hub amongst the Levites uh, as a whole. O- almost reminds me of Jesus's movements in his final um, period in Jerusalem, kind of being in, ministering in the center, and then sort of going back out and spending time outside the walls with his disciples, and then back in um, uh, again, and then back out.
1: Yeah, the rule is stated very generally that the Levites uh, he can come to the place that the Lord chooses whenever he desires, with all the desire of his soul. And when he does that, he's given a place of service in some fashion. He he finds a role of work at the central sanctuary, and uh, he shares the portions that uh, the Levites priests get that are there at the at the place that the Lord chooses. So that the, the yet yeah, uh, it does it. I mean, this is one of the one of the many laws in Deuteronomy that are uh, shaped by. The choice, uh, Yahweh's choice of a particular place, uh, and that that disrupts certain patterns of life. Uh, if you have, uh, if you're in the wilderness, then you have the the wilderness camp is set up. So the priests and Levites are settled right at the uh, right around the camp. They're the inner circle around the camp, and then the tribes are grouped around the outer circle of the camp. But they're the they're the uh, the nearest, immediately in the vicinity of the tabernacle. Uh, but that's not going to be the case when they go into the land. They're going to be dispersed, and the tabernacle is going to be in one place. And so that creates this need or this at least opportunity for movement and uh, the distance between uh, Levitical Levites doing certain kinds of ministry in the towns uh, and the ministry that's done at the central sanctuary. That We've seen that that dynamic of distance and movement coming up in the in, uh, uh, repeatedly in Deuteronomy, cause, because of the central sanctuary.
3: Thinking about the difference that it would make, having moved into the land, no longer having a camp gathered around this central sanctuary, but being dispersed, it seems that the duties of the Levites would have changed considerably. They're not moving around the tabernacle place to place, so the different families, the Levites that are appointed the tasks in Numbers chapter 2 would no longer have those responsibilities. Um, You would have some guardians for the house, but they would be fairly minimal compared to the number that you would need when the whole camp was gathered around. Assistance would still be needed, but again, nowhere near as many as you would need when the whole camp was gathered around. So it seems that this movement into the land would have entailed very considerable changes in the manner of the Levites' life lives and their responsibilities and far more of a shift from being guardians of the house in the sense of the tabernacle to and those who carry that around to being those who are bearing responsibility for the house in the broader metaphorical sense of israel as a nation and so their duties again the sorts of duties that would after the entrance into the land would have a lot to do with The fact also that central teaching roles, such as we see in Deuteronomy, as Moses is teaching the people as a whole, would require a lot more, there would be, much as there was with the elders, a delegation to a large number of Levites, central teaching tasks that would once have been performed by Moses and Aaron, the whole camp. Now it has to be divided out by all their different settlements and a sort of reduction of their their role they're no longer moving things around they're no longer guardians of the house for the most part um some would be but for most of them they wouldn't be but there's an increased responsibility on their shoulders presumably with duties of teaching and judging the duties of Moses and Aaron and a smaller group of people now they are um, raised up to a new authority within specific communities. I would imagine,
1: right? And it, it's uh, one. It seems like one way to think about it is that you have kind of the the wilderness camp that's been expanded out to the entire land. You still have uh, the place that the Lord chooses. At least the place the Lord eventually chooses is more or less centrally located among the tribes, and so you have the tribes kind of organized around that central location. Uh, you don't have the Priests and Levites that are in the immediate vicinity. Many of the priests live in the area of the of the central sanctuary, but even priests are going to be scattered in the land in various places. Uh, so, the but in a broader sense, the the priests and Levites yeah are, are the glue, as James described it, the glue that's holding the nation together. Uh, they're still doing service to the house, but now the house is much expanded beyond just the that one that one tent. Now it is uh, expanded out to encompass the land. Right. It strikes me that you've got this
2: almost really interesting miniature little microcosm of that Levitical arrangement in Exodus thirty-two. After there has been the 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 great sin with the golden calf, in that kind of Moses stands, doesn't he, in the gate of the camp, and and sort of says, you know, come to me, the Levites. Um, gather um around him they sort of join join themselves to him and then sort of go it's an interesting phrase it's sort of something like go to and fro from gate to gate to gate it's got it's this particular construction that has this, this idea of kind of back and forthing and obviously from gate to gate is is the kind of the term that's used for uh towns uh particularly throughout deuteronomy and they're effectively to do that I mean in that context it's to kill your brother to kill the um idolaters. but idolaters but they're to go and, and cleanse um and then return and then go out and do the same thing meanwhile Moses himself um well not meanwhile but after that he goes up and makes atonement before um the Lord ascends into God's um presence and it, it feels like you've got um there almost just a little miniature of the Levites' um, ministry. There is the sort of high priestly um, position of Moses, and then the Levites then sort of going from gate to gate and
1: purifying the people. So this opening section of uh, chapter 18 is uh, about the priests and the Levites who have distinctive roles within Israel. Uh, and the way that Israel is supposed to honor them is by uh, giving them these portions, their just portion, their, their mishpot. And um, that uh, gift of food, the gift of the land, uh, grain, new wine, and oil, grain, wine, and oil, the gift of the animal parts, those are all ways of honoring the priests. And although we don't have the same kind of structure of authority and structure of priesthood in the New Covenant, I think the principle is still there, that um, there's still uh, a kind of paternal role, role that leaders play within the churches, within the church. The pastor... Protestant circles, we don't call our pastors fathers. Uh, some Anglicans do, uh, but by and large, uh, those outside of the Roman Catholic Church uh, in the West, uh, that, uh, that that language is not used. But that's still true. There's still a kind of paternal role that pastors have. Uh, the Eternal Father has uh, appointed them to be to be fathers to the to the uh, to the church, and one of the ways that the the church honors those leaders, the pastors, elders, or whoever is in charge of the the management and the care of the church, uh, is by supporting them. Paul makes a point of this in Corinthians. Um, he cites a passage about the ox uh, eating from the grain that he's from the grain that he's threshing. You don't muzzle the threshing ox, and he applies that to ministers who are being paid by the churches and and in a similar way to what we have here. They. They're not engaged in the same kind of productive labor as the members of the church. Just as the priests and Levites are not engaged in the same kind of productive labor as the rest of Israel. Uh, in fact, you could say that <laughs> the specialty of priests and Levites is wastage. They they take animals that uh, have been uh, cared for, and a lot of is imbe- a lot of money has in, been invested in, a lot of time has been invested in, a lot of food has been invested in, and then they slaughter them, and and often. Just consume the entire animal on an altar. They they don't look like they're they're making uh, much of a contribution to the to the GDP. They're crucial to the health of Israel, uh, and even though they they aren't producing goods in the same way that the rest of Israel is, they're supported by those goods because they're providing this uh, essential service of standing and serving Yahweh. And again, we have the same the same kind of dynamic within the church that pastors. Some pastors have side hustles. Some pastors are tent makers. I think in the ideal situation, a pastor doesn't have to have a side hustle, but the church is supporting him, uh, and so he can be in uh, providing those what look like unproductive services that are essential to the health of the people. So the the patterns that we have here, although that although the uh, I think the, I think the priesthood is drastically changed as we move into the new covenant, the patterns are still in place, and this still gives us a model for uh, how to.